going to fly over footy. Welcome to the show on the big 550 KTRS. It is going to be an interesting one. It's going to be a bit of a different show. I'm only going to say that once tonight. Uh, you know, a little down in some ways for obvious reasons, but it's also uh, game two in a three game series after playing Sporting Kansas City three times. I mean, it's just this is, it's strange, uh, but I think there's plenty to talk about. We always have trouble fitting it into 45 minutes anyway because we enjoy this far too much. And uh, luckily, I do have my friends here with me, Matt Baker, Santiago Beltran. Matt, let's start with you, man. How are you doing? Doing well. Looking forward to this weekend. I feel optimistic. I, I know there's been a lot of discussion this week. It, it's if, if there was ever a down week for us this year, it was this week, unfortunately, into the playoffs. But, you know, I, I think... It, I think it's trending in the right direction from what we're hearing during training. I'm, it's been a good week overall, and you know I'm ready to get back into it. I'm tired of the talk. I'm just ready to see another city game. Tired of the talk? Yes, I think that's going to be a theme tonight. Actually, Santiago. Speaking of talking, uh, we talked about how uh, this was a hard one for you to call on the radio broadcast, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't in your shoes that night. But I guess in some ways we're lucky. This is the kind of the first real bad one of the MLS season. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long season, and, and yeah, like that one um, in MLS, uh, also Club America, League Cup. But yeah, you don't get games like that uh, too often, at least with this team. So, but yeah, ready for Sunday. I'll be in Kansas City calling the game from there. So excited about some uh, away uh, playoff game uh, live. So looking forward to it. Yeah, hopefully this is the last time you call a game and it's four Kansas City goals. Hopefully the first time <laughs> ever <laughs> or in the last time ever. Uh, but let's let's kind of dig into news and notes as we often do. Like kind of get started on on that kind of thing. So, Matt, how you, uh, let's lead off with your newcomer story. I had a feeling you might want to lead off with this one. You were, you were I, I pretty mean, upset about this situation. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, we don't have as much news, I guess, as last week. I felt last week it was just a, a nonstop barrage of things going on. This week, it's been relatively quiet on the news front. Um, but MLS has graced us with the first of their end of year awards, that being newcomer of the year. Announced with uh, Yorios Yakamakis from Atlanta United winning MLS Newcomer of the Year for 2022. He was second in the Golden Boot Race with 17 goals for Atlanta. So a very much deserved award for him. He was in the in contention with Edu Leuven and Lionel Messi, the three finalists. And it's the percentage of the votes that really got me, uh, not necessarily the, the winner or anything like that. I, I'm a fan of Yakamakis. I think he deserves it. I'm I'm fine with him winning. If it was going to be uh, anybody that won him or Leuven, I was okay with it because you can justify Yakamakis winning second in the Golden Boot. The problem I have is when the percentage of the vote was re- revealed, you see a third of it was from the players, a third of it from club uh, GMs and and sporting leadership, and a third of it from the media. And the Yakamakis vote was 34% of the player vote, 46% of the club vote, and 56% of the media vote. Edu Leuven actually came in third, which in a normal scenario, I probably wouldn't have too much of an argument. But Lionel Messi, the man who has played just a couple hundred minutes of MLS play with one goals, two assists in the MLS regular season, somehow garnered 35.5% of the player vote and 34% of the club vote. When this award is very specifically for the MLS regular season performance, 
And there was some conversations with Andrew Wiebe, with Taylor Twalman today about players and coaches and GMs feeling how they're going to feel. Maybe they're they're at different places when they vote. They aren't given uh, maybe the most explicit of the same instructions. Whatever the case, I would have uh, I would have rioted a little bit more had Messi actually won this award. Where the the Ballon d'Or, you can say what you want about him versus Holland on. Uh, the broader stage and his World Cup performance being the lin- the thing that won it for him, but for this award too, I mean the the lack of anything he did in MLS regular season really made this a stretch for him to be even a finalist, let alone second and getting the most percentage of the player vote. So I was that was where I was hard up against uh, the overall winner, Yakamakis. I'm good with. What do you think, Santiago? Well, yeah, I was surprised he, he was in this list of finalists. Uh, but yeah, you seeing um, the player vote and and the club votes uh, being so close for uh, Messi and Giacomakis, uh, that was a surprise. Um, but yeah, in the end, uh, a player who deserved it and scored a lot of goals and uh, has had a great year got it. Uh, what I like about this... Uh, announcement is that we will be able to see uh, the breakdown of the votes and who was second, who was third. I remember I was asking about that in a previous podcast and we we weren't sure. So that is nice. So that's nice. I like this. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to seeing the rest. And and Matt, you you probably know this. Do they like stagger the announcements, like maybe one every day or something like that? I don't know about one every day, but I think they are going to be staggering them because the the only dates that they've publicly released is about the best 11 and the referees. And those aren't going to be announced for a couple weeks. So I I would look to maybe not every single day, but, you know, an, an announcement here and there leading up to probably the MVP being the ultimate award. Madam, my favorite reply to you today was the Andrew Wiebe saying that he voted for Yakimakis because he's the oldest child and, and a rule follower, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I was like, boy, yeah, that's like Matt's argument is like the rule follower thing. So then my next thought was, is Matt the oldest child? Is this are we on to something here? Yeah, that tracks. Okay, yeah, one hundred percent tracks. I love it. That was a funny one from Andrew, uh, but it just reminds me. This whole exercise reminds me of that. Um, you know that test you get in school where the teacher hands everything. I was like, okay, everyone follow instructions, and you take this test. And I, of course, was the kid. Granted, I am the oldest as well, but of course, I want to finish as fast as I can. So I skip the directions. I do the whole test, and of course, the instructions say, don't do any. Uh, question except the last one and the last one says put your name on the top and turn it in <laughs> have you guys ever gotten that test am i the only one is this like a i've heard fables style? of it I've, I've heard like uh i've heard that kind of a, a test but i've never experienced it i'm because i'm the rule follower i'm the one who reads the instructions i will <laughs> never be caught in that pitfall so i wish you had taken that test because then we could have really proven this point but uh you know i would just like to say about this that i think all of the players, the club vote, the media vote. I think a lot of them were more like me than they were like you, Matt. I don't think they paid attention to the instructions at all. They just voted with their hearts. And uh, well, the players and clubs definitely. But yeah. at least the media, at least the media only had twelve percent of vote to Messi. Yeah, so, but it's still twelve percent. Yeah. <laughs> we did hear there was that one person last uh, last week on Flyover. We actually saw the Miami 
journalist, I air quotes journalist, who had his impassioned speech on Twitter about why he voted for Messi, yeah. specifically detailing his performance in League's Cup and everything he meant <laughs> to the league. And oh gosh, I just wanted to scratch my eyes out when I was reading that and seeing that side by side too. And so it, that, that explains why some media did. They completely ignored the instructions. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, they... Let's keep the instructions and just thought, oh, he had a great league scout. Let's put him here. Yeah. Or they just saw the name and, and had to circle it. <laughs> yeah. I felt for yeah. you, Matt, though. I saw that announcement, and actually the first thing I saw was you tweeting about the announcement, and uh, I thought that was appropriate. Sorry, man. This is just this is life, but I am glad that Yakamagas got it, and I think it makes the most sense uh, yeah. for the reasons you laid out there. Um, and I was still disappointed uh, that Leuven got such a low vote. But out of so many good players in MLS, and I know it's just the newcomers, uh, I'm still proud to have them there. I think well, he deserved it and earned it as well. And the two things are, Leuven missed time this year. And so when you're looking at Yakamak as being second in the Golden Boot, Leuven's stats would have been padded undoubtedly if mm -hmm. he had played the entire season and and the impact that he would have had before Klaus the way he was on that streak I mean he would have he would have garnered more of the vote had he not missed time and you know this is just one of the potentials for City you know we still have Carnell we still have Berkey we still have Parker so we have a lot of the things that we were actually pitting I think this was the one of the longer shots that we thought anyway Leuven and Parker were the longer shots uh, looking to the likely ones, it's it's Berkey and Carnell. Yeah, and actually speaking of that, I'm going to throw this in here, guys, because I know you saw it anyway, that um, athletic article that was about um, rating the designated players in MLS and looking at their performance. Now, it was funny. They set it up in the tweet with a ranking system. I never saw a full ranking system, which is totally fine with me. I found it very interesting to see that if what they said in there was that if you – it, you know, we ranked somewhere in the middle, I think, as far as Leuven and um, Klaus. And um, if you add in Berkey, because we're not sure whether Berkey's a DP or not for sure. <laughs> they, you, they claim he's not for he's not in the books this year as a DP. So okay, they're not well, counting him. Well, they said if you did count him on the G plus stat, which mm -hmm. is goals added statistic, that we would blow everyone out of the water. Berkey's oh. addition there. And I thought that was a really cool thing to understand. It, and that's something, to be honest, I thought was going to help us in the playoffs more than the regular season. But uh, so far, that's not true. But I think we, we can all agree that uh, Berkey's been a massive asset for the team this oh, year. Yeah. Um, another cool one, Matt, I saw this today as well. Warner Elementary School, um, Indiana, Indiana Vass 11, John Bell showed up to a pep rally. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. One of the things last week that uh, retrospectively that I saw a few comments on is that there were a lot of off the field activities that city players and everybody were involved in uh, that hindsight is 2020, but the, the thought is there's a lot of off the field activities. We're going to talk about Roman Berkey's comment from last week, but this is the only real, I guess, um, community involvement, getting out beyond training and uh, really just having fun that the players did. And I felt it was a very uh, good use of their time. I mean, you're getting involved with City Futures, with uh, with the youth and Warner Elementary being in St. Louis Public School District. It was a perfect spot for a pep rally to hype up, hype up kids, just garner support and get, you know, everybody at that level excited for this upcoming match and all the watch parties that are going on. I thought it was cool that Indy and John Bell went out and did that. 
And if you're looking at the club, you know, one of my favorite things about the club is, is garnering that community involvement and really trying to get the, uh, you know, get training for soccer out there for everybody. I thought it was a nice uh, flag in the dirt about, you know, going to a St. Louis city school and, and um, you know, going to a place where we probably need to get more soccer in there. If the kids are wanting it, at least providing it in a way that they can um, get to it. So I thought that was amazing as well, that if they're going to do one activity this week, that, that that was what they chose. Very nice. Um, Ultra club watch parties, lots of them around. And I miss this, Matt. Is it true? They're going to have, they're going to open up the ultra club. It's free tickets, but it's limited. I think tickets are sold out and they sold out shortly after they went on sale, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, free tickets, ultra club watch party. That is what the club is putting on for the second match Sunday, November 5th, uh, doors open at three o'clock for that 4 PM kickoff. It joins watch parties that I know the Luligans are having one at second shift, uh, the punks and Santos are at the armory nine mile garden is open for the family friendly one as well. Uh, so the club opening ultra club for the ticketed, the free ticketed event, uh, it, they're going to have food, drink specials, rally towels, giveaways. And if it follows on the footsteps of anything else that they've done at the ultra club for the watch parties, it'll just be a good fun atmosphere. Absolutely. All right, guys, are you ready? We're going to do this. I know you guys had flyover fallout that you guys put out every Monday. In this case, Tuesday, right? You got it out on Tuesday? We got it on Monday. Monday. Sorry. We went straight to it less than 24 hours. You got to give us credit. I've been so impressed with you guys pulling that off all season. Um, So do make sure you check that out every Monday. These guys will review the game, Santiago and Matt, and it's a, a lovely thing to listen to. It's really nice to just help yourself kind of uh, process the game, especially in the way that you guys do it. So I, I do appreciate that. Uh, but we are going to talk a little bit more about it now. Santiago, I thought we'd kind of lead off with your thoughts on the game before Matt's got a quote that I think we all heard this week. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, yeah. We, I, I don't want to talk a lot about this, but yeah, just a different game. Um, sporting uh, did something different. And that's one of the things I was, uh, I, I was concerned about uh, when you play a team so many times and you have a coach like Peter Vermese, uh, he's not going to let you beat you uh, badly three times at your stadium. Like two games, four goals were scored by City on each game and I had a feeling he was going to have something different and and he did and and Sporting KC executed well and ended up um, winning 4-1. But... Uh, I kind of want to move forward and just uh, think about Sunday. Absolutely. But, you know, I think this Roman Berkey comment that was made during uh, the presser was really, really good. You know, we, we heard from Carnell. We heard a lot of the coach kind of stuff. I do. I want to say that I thought what he said was very classy. I thought, um, I don't know. I, I couldn't have asked for more from a coach about his perspective on on losing in the way that happened and moving forward. I, I thought he said everything correctly, but it is still kind of coach speak, right? And, and Berkey has a way of cutting straight to the chase in a lot of <laughs> ways, right? In a way that I really, really appreciate. Matt, you have, I'm sure, some thoughts on that as well. I felt like it was typical Roman Berkey captain speak. I thought it was necessary. I thought that uh, this is a team that has now lost three in a row and is on the brink of elimination after such a fantastic regular season. And to, to hear him come out and be brutally honest after clearly taking a moment to process the question that was asked about their preparation and training coming into the match. And I felt his quote was revealing in his willingness to hold people accountable 
for for their actions in game and what could potentially lead up to that because his experience uh, in in any type of competition gives him the knowledge in these lose and go home scenarios of you can say MLS playoffs are different than what anybody's experienced, but how much different is it really than uh, a cup game or a champions league game where if you're in the knockout stages, you lose and you're done. I mean, that's, that's what they're facing here. Game one, put them on the, on the back seat. They're, they're now in trouble with their backs against the wall, but this is, this is it. And his quote was, quote, I was young too, and sometimes you think today, I don't feel really good, but it doesn't matter because the game's on Sunday and we still have time. Then after a game like this, you ask yourself, what's the reason? And sometimes that happens, happened last week at the preparation for this game. And I'm sure that the guys will understand that's how you train and that's how you're going to play. The game is just the reward for the work you put in during the week to prepare yourself. It's difficult to change something on game day or during the game, how you're going to feel or how you're going to perform based on how you did in training. And you can, obviously, there's not a whole lot of um, alliteration needed for that. It's not exactly the most abstract thought of what he was getting to. And I, may, I made a comment earlier when we talked about Indy and John Bell going to the pep rally that maybe last week there were some distractions. And it was a, a celebration of sorts to be you know, going into the playoffs for the first time as an expansion team, having the number one seed. You know, you're celebrating getting that far. But celebrating can only take you so far when you still have work ahead. And if you're if you take your eye off the prize, if you get away from your principles, as Carnell and Klaus said today, then you're going to end up watching the rest of the tournament from your couch. And that's not something the city wants to be in a position to because they don't want to be the, the one of the best regular season teams. They want to be one of the best expansion teams. And that means going into the playoffs a little further maybe not moving out of the first round even necessarily but you can't be blown away two games in a row and still call yourself a one of the best expansion teams of all time i feel you would lose a lot of muster if that ends up being the case and so this was roman berkey after the game holding his team accountable as they go into this week of training yeah and i want to soften his comments just a little bit just because i think it was honestly um maybe the third or fourth time i heard berkey speak in person um he was saying something really similar to this. Honestly, he was talking about how young some of these guys are and, and the work ethic is very different. I think we were asking what was the difference between MLS and what his experience was with Dortmund, obviously. And um, it was the same exact comment, really. So yep. this could just be an elite player knowing what a soccer team can uh, train like, knowing what the best are like in training, the best of the best of the best and him being an MLS and just noticing that difference. And maybe that's all it is. Or we could be taking it very seriously. I think uh, City fans are taking this very seriously. So I just wanted to throw that option out there that this isn't something new from Berkey per se. Um, but if we were to take it seriously, um, you know, it could be that they're, they're just worn out. And mentally, you know, they're not able to keep up with the physical pace as well. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot that could go into this. I'm trying not to overthink it. Yes, this is a podcast. This is a radio show that's going to talk about it and overthink about it. Um, but the game is the decider, right? And so I'm just so freaking anxious to get this game started again and hopefully see a new team. Any other thoughts from you, Santiago, about this quote? No, obviously his his perspective and and yeah, as Matt said, like last week, maybe there were too many distractions, events. Uh, media requests, uh, content that 
uh, the team wanted to put out there. But you have to find a, a balance for that. And part of what you said, Phil, like, yeah, it could be a, like, could be mental fatigue or satisfaction with what has been done so far or a mix of all of those things. But now the team has to find that balance and move forward and be ready for Sunday. Any other thoughts, Matt? I, I My thoughts really are just how how the games before this are going to inform this Sunday because, you know, Santi is pretty spot on that you don't want to look too much back at this past game. But I, I was looking back at all four of the games that we played, and this doesn't really have anything to do with Roman's quote as much as it does. I curious, you know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about what we need to do to get back in the driver's seat, what we need to do to dictate the pace of play and the flow of the game. But if you look at all four of the matches that have happened, the win, then the loss, then the win, then the loss, there have been a kind of a steady progression of, of a lot of these stats that are not trending in the right direction for how a city team plays. And we know how city plays. We've seen them all year, and we know what they do well when they win. We know what they don't do well when they lose. And it's pretty cut and dry in a lot of respects. If you look at that very first game we played back in May, we had 33% possession. The second game that we lost in September, we had 42. The third game that we won, we had 47%. This last game, we had 57%. It's trending. It's been trending upward this entire time, and I firmly believe these are the kinds of results of a Peter Vermees team that is trying different things tactically. They're they're doing what they need to do to kind of tip the scales away from what City does really well. And a Peter Vermees coach team has a history of doing a lot of different things. And they've found a couple different things that really work well against the city group. And one of them is limit their overall number of shots because the possession skewing up, the total passes skewing up this entire time. The shots are very clear that when city gets, you know, double digit shots or more, we're talking 15 to 20 shots, not shots on goal, but just shots. Then they're going to by volume, get enough chances to put the ball in the net. They've been exceeding their XG this entire year. And if you look at that very first game, we had six shots on goal, 15 shots. The second game that we lost, it was two shots on goal, eight shots. Hmm. The third game that we won, eight shots on goal, 21 shots. And this last game, six shots on goal, 10 shots. So anytime City is is limited on their efficacy in the final third to the point where they're not even able to get off shots... They're, they're not going to put up high XG. They're not going to put up high goals. The games that we've lost, they've had less than one XG for the entire game. The games we've won, they've had at least 1.5 or higher. St. Louis City has. So Sporting KC knows what they need to do to limit the, the opportunities, which directly lead to limiting results for City. And the question going forward is, now that we've seen a couple different ways that SKC can beat and even play against City, how can we internalize this? You know, we talked about this earlier, guys. My thing going forward isn't necessarily what can we expect Sporting Kansas City to do. It's taking all of these experiences that we have. And Carnell has said, we know how they play. They know how we play. How can you get back to your own principles within yourself to dictate the pace of play? Don't think about what Sporting KC is going to be doing. I think that's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, how can we take our personnel, put them into the best positions to play our style, regardless of what SKC is going to do. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And first of all, you're listening to Flyover Footy on the big 550 KTRS. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to talk about uh, St. Louis City playing SKC in the second of a possible three-game series here after a loss 4-1 to in the first game. Um, they're about to face them again on Sunday night, as many of you know. And so, yeah, it, the question I think I have is, do we have any other choice but to double down on our own style? Because they're really... There isn't really a backup plan. I, I do think they counterattack more successfully against Kansas City in the away games, but um, those are the games that didn't go so well, right? And so yeah. I have an opinion on that, but um, yeah. But even so, but even so in that second game, like we didn't get a lot of shots, but we, we, we scored the first goal. That was a game where it was one of the few games this year where we scored the first goal and we didn't end up winning. Mm-hmm. I think there, there were a lot of things that went into that, and we all remember them well, yeah. from from allowing too much space in the final third, from Alan Polito basically carving us up, to the offside callback on Sam, to a couple of the, the question marks on the refs. We let those outside things get into the conversation more so than playing our style. And this was also a game where Klaus didn't start, Leuven didn't start. You know, we were playing the three games in eight days type situation. So there were, I would, I would argue we were not at our 100%. We were not running out our best 11. And I think that's, a, that's an opinion shared by a lot in that first loss. The second loss, I just think we were, the, what ended up happening at home in the second loss too is there, were, there was no stretching the field. There was no width even to our passing network. We talked about it on, on Fallout that Jared Stroud out on the left side, I don't care what you say about Jared Stroud as a player, he was tucked in way too much that entire game. We had nothing working wide and high on our left side. And that's a, that's a place where Jake Davis can be exposed, and Sam Adeneron is adept at doing that kind of a thing, given these 1v1 scenarios. We're at our best when we stretch the field wide, we stretch the field high, and we get into 1v few scenarios. We let Sam do his work. We let Klaus win these 1v1 battles. And we, we provide enough space that our, our one or two attackers can work with because they are very good at finishing once they get an opportunity with the ball. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Santiago, as far as what you'd like to see from St. Louis and, and maybe what we saw versus Kansas City in past games? Yeah, no, definitely trying to um, impose um, its its own style, regardless of what Sporting KC does. But uh, one thing is uh, you also have to try to adjust and, and balance. Um, if 20 minutes go by and the game is still scoreless and Sporting KC is still inviting you to play instead of uh, letting you use your, your best weapon that is your style. You, you have to balance a little bit and, and see what you can do to, to build some plays and, and then, uh, and then um, counter press and, and, and start doing what, what your style is. But, uh, but yeah, I think you, you have to find some balance. Uh, if, if you are unable to score within those first 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, I saw a, a tweet. I'm not finding it now because I really would like to give the guy credit who, who said it. Um, but noticing that Kansas City um, would lose the ball, I think against St. Louis, every team has to plan on, on losing the ball from at times based on their style of play. And instead of counter-pressing immediately, which is something that KC is usually pretty rabid in doing, um, they would actually sit back, collect themselves, you know, 
create a, another block and, and wait for St. Louis to dribble into it and lose it, which is kind of how it played out, played out. And so, you know, I just, I, I look at that and I look at what Matt's saying, like, is I do agree, Matt, I, I do think doubling down on the press, that being our, our best chances. And I think what you said about being able to be wide and, and counterattack against a few players, however it happens, the press seems to be the best way to do that in my opinion. And um, I'll just mix that with another comment that a friend of mine said, saying that maybe Klaus is a lone striker with AZ below him is not the best way to press a team like Kansas city. Um, Because I think they're based on, I've, I've said it before, but based on this game, I was shocked how often sporting Kansas city was able to escape mm-hmm. the double team. And that's, you know, always I've said it way too many times. I, I apologize, but that's my biggest worry against a team like Kansas city. And so I don't know if that plays into what we talked about earlier is, is the team just tired where they lacking momentum and, and just, you know, not pushing hard enough in the game and Casey was able to play through them more easily, or are they just like firing on all cylinders that this is the kind of Kansas city game uh, team that we're going to see at the end of the season um, or when they're hot um, in the future. And, and, and so I guess I'm going to go into this more as we finish with the lineups, but I agree with you, Matt, to say that I think the only way to go at this is to double down on not letting them escape. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious how that'll play out, whether it's possible at this point against a team that is so adept at playing through a press or out of the back. Well, what they showed is they were very willing to send the ball long. They had the, the same number of completed long passes as us, but they had almost 20 more attempts. Hmm. And so their their way that they were beating our press is just to move the ball around, to send the ball and to just put it in positions that inherently beat the press, whether you were keeping control of the ball or not. They were very willing to just say, we're going to fight for aerial duels. And that's how we're beating your press. We're going to send it long and you're going to have to, you're going to have to win the ball. And more often than not, Kansas won the ball. They had more duels yeah. won than we did in that game by about 10 or 15. And if, if you're, if you're, if you're sporting KC and you're willing to do something like that, where you're not, you're not even needing to control the ball. You're just putting it up to 50 fifties. You're confident in your players to win the ball in some of those dangerous positions. And that's where St. Louis was beat a whole lot because picture guys like Klaus and AZ who are stretching the the field to press. If sporting is sending the ball up for aerial duels with our attackers spread out with our defenders still deep a little bit, we've, we've stretched ourselves pretty thin. And so we're opening up a lot of space for if KC can win those duels, suddenly they have space for days to work with. And that's what often happened. It definitely happened for one of their goals where they won a 50 50 and then they were just off and running there. And, and that's where you get into trouble if you're not keeping numbers deep. I almost feel like this is a game where it's not five at the back, but Jabulu Blom has to be basically on a tether to our center backs. Like there cannot be as much space opened up in and around our defensive half. They scored three goals. They were the, the first team to score three goals outside the 18-yard box all year. And they did it in the first half. Hmm. They they weren't waiting for high percentage chances. They were taking their shots long when they had the slightest bit of space, and they were getting that by winning these aerial duels. They weren't moving the ball up the field effectively like they usually do. And so relying on Alan Polito to do all of this work, relying on Daniel Shallowy to move the ball up on the left side against Jake Nerwinski, all those things were very successful. And so how, what does this mean for what St. Louis needs to, to do going forward? I think it means we need to have a defender that stays deep to help 
shore up that space in Jabulu Blom. And we need Edu Leuven to be a connector. Edu, Jabulu Blom to Edu Leuven to AZ Jackson. That That's a, an effective midfield combination. I don't think Edu Leuven's best position is the 10 in this type of an offense right now. I think two strikers works. I think we need to have two strikers, and I'm, my lineup has that. But I think Edu Leuven, who is leading our team in shot-creating actions because of his long progressive passes and his ability to carry the ball through the midfield, is where he can shine for this team. He's the engine for a reason. If if Leuven can connect players like Parker, Nilsson, and Blome up to AZ, to Indy, to Sam, and to Klaus – that's where we can be effective at counterattacking or moving the ball up the field when you don't send it long. I think the midfield was a very it was a it was a compact area in the passing network for the last game, and it looked like there was a lot of traffic going on, but none of it was effective. It was not effective in moving the ball up the field. The number of actual shot creating actions was about was at least halved by everybody's average. I'm talking Edu Leuven, Aziel Jackson, guys who are usually very effective at creating multiple shots in their their pace of play, whether it's passes or beating guys on the dribble, they weren't doing it this past game because the midfield was so clogged. And that's going to be a byproduct of stretching the field wide, wide and high. You bring in Sam for Jared Stroud, for instance, and suddenly you have two attackers who can push the field up and you're creating a lot of open space for guys that you know can handle the ball well, both Leuven in the midfield at an AZ high. Very interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I want to ask you guys a couple questions and let's not take long on these, but I do want to pose them because this is what I've been hearing around the league from the pundits, especially one is that um, St. Louis has one style of play and can, you know, now the words out right. And now everyone's going to attack them a certain way. Um, that's one. And I think to pair with it um, is this team's never been to the playoffs and they don't have experience in the playoffs. And that's why this isn't working. I think those things kind of go hand in hand. Santiago, let's start with you. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So yeah, not necessarily experience in the MLS playoffs, but a lot of these guys have experience in, in champions league or uh, cup games uh, in, in the leagues they play in Europe. So it's not like they're unfamiliar with, this format of home and away. This one is a little bit different because it's a series of three games. But but I think at the same time, there is a little bit of experience. And, and then you have Tim Parker, who has played in quite a few playoff games. And Erwin Skills has some experience. Um, so yeah, experience in MLS, yes. But the whole group has a lot of experience uh, in, in, in other leagues, uh, even uh, some guys with national teams. So, uh, so I wouldn't say that that has a lot of weight. But um, the first one, the just having one style and not having a plan B, yeah, that definitely uh, it's a long season. And uh, some of the games City lost during the regular season, you can see that footprint that teams will just sit back and basically invite City to to beat them and uh, instead of letting City press uh, when, when the other teams have possession. Um, so I think that's what I was saying. Like you need to have a plan B or have some balance. Uh, it cannot be press, press, press all the time, especially if you get to the 20th minute and, and still scoreless. So still need some, some balance and, and some adjustments as the game goes on uh, if you are not being successful. 
Anything you want to expand on there, Matt? I have one more question after this, if you don't mind. Yeah, and I, I still think one of the biggest adjustments that we can make is controlling the ball in the midfield. When we get when we get frustrated or the press isn't working or we're being forced to possess the ball, the ball's often moved out to our wings and then try to progress through there. Whether it's a give and go to an outside midfielder and a fullback or not, there's very little involvement that we've had with Jabulu Blom progressing the ball upfield. Hmm. He doesn't carry the ball at all, but we are oftentimes successful when he can be a progressive passer, when he finds players a little further up the field, and that's often Edu Leuven. So I go back to our ability to create space in the midfield and progress the ball that will pull some players outside of their own defensive third. If we can if we can create numbers by moving the ball up the field progressively, we'll get enough shots off to my one of my first points. We'll get enough shots off to eventually find net. We're, we're never a high XG team. That's just not what we've been all year. That's going to be a topic of discussion in the offseason. If we get bounced now, it's going to be a big topic of debate on how overperforming our XG has been a detriment. But the fact is it's worked so far. Volume is king for this offense. And so if you're not creating volume somehow, then you're not going to be effective. Interesting one. And my last question is Taylor Twelman uh, posted that that tweet that kind of bothered me, but I couldn't disagree with it about Nilsson and uh, chemistry between him and Parker and, and the back line and how our record with Nilsson and Parker together hasn't been stellar per se. Do you think that's causation, Matt? Um, to me, it seems like there could be a lot of variables there outside of just that. Yeah, one of the variables is the stats that I pulled about Akil Watts starting with Anthony Marcanic and Kyle mm-hmm. Hebert. So it's not just a center back story. Nilsson, Nilsson starting at center back and getting in, in form with Parker, it's not isolation with those two. It's how our fullbacks play off of them. There's a lot of call for Akil Watts to see more playing time. Akil Watts, when starting with Kyle Hebert at the right and left back, they're 6-0, and oh, no draws, no losses. When he starts with Marcanic at left back, all they have is two draws against LA Galaxy and LAFC. The Akil hasn't played against Sporting KC, so that's an option. But I think when you're talking about Nilsson in a bubble, I think that's reading too much into it. That's causation without correlation to me. What do you think, uh, Santiago? Yeah, I agree. There are other factors. And, and a lot of the goals that um, I think it was 15 goals in, in all those matches, a lot of those goals were the last three. And, and we know that against Vancouver and Seattle, I will – take I would think about those a little bit different just because the team okay. was already in first place uh, but yeah I think um, isolating it to just Nilsson uh, I don't think that's 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 a good analysis of, of what's going on love it we've got a few more minutes before we do our lineup Matt it's your choice whatever you'd like to talk about here well, I want to talk about really quickly some of the player conversations in in the fan base this week. There have been conversations around AZ, <laughs> Leuven, everybody, the, everybody. Yeah, we we were commenting that I think the only players I saw unscathed this week from comments were probably Berkey, Parker, and I and I think Blome. I don't think I saw anything necessarily mm. bad about those three. I even saw a Facebook fan group saying we've been better without Klaus. <laughs> that's that's how far some of these fan comments go. So grain of salt all over the place here. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I think there are some serious questions about how we can improve our lineup based on what we saw. One of those things is looking at our fullbacks. Another is looking at our, our wide attacking mids on how we can create some space, spread the field. 
and do what Salio did when he entered the game against KC last week. He was so good with the ball at his feet, beating individual players. I think he beat Jake Davis one-on-one at least twice yep. over on the left side. So looking at, at different ways that we can attack players, whether it's right off the bat or as a 55-60, 65-minute sub, players who can change the game quickly, maybe that's where Salio is, is needed is in that scenario. But to me, we're strongest with Edu Leuven in the midfield at the eight alongside Jabulu Blom, given a little bit of freedom to roam around. We just need to be more clinical and effective in him progressing the ball. We've had a lot of a lot of really hard passes, a lot of missed opportunities where things just aren't as crisp as they usually were. And it starts there, but it also has to finish with our finishers. Klaus has to find net. Sam has to find net. And if you get enough shots off with these players, their form as strikers are going to lead to better shots over the course of the game. They just need those opportunities. Absolutely. Um, let's do it. Let's get into our lineups because I have a bit to say on this one. So I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm giving myself some space to speak here. Uh, but Matt, I would love for you to lead us off with your uh, prediction on the lineup and, and the score. Yeah, my lineup, uh, I alluded to it. I've got Kyle Hebert back at left back, Joachim Nilsson, Tim Parker, and Akil Watts to finish our back line. Edu Leuven, the eight, Blom as the six. I still have AZ Jackson, Indi- Indiana Vasilev as our attacking mids. Klaus and Sam up top. Whether it looks as a flat 4-4-2, which I think is the best for this group, um, maybe the dual 10 still with AZ and Indy pushing a little higher, or 4-2-2-2, I just want to see the field spread out a little bit more, and I want to see more room to work for Edu Leuven, all leading to what I'm going to go say as a 3-2 score City winning. What do you think, Santiago? Yeah, so I also have uh, some changes. Um, I was thinking back uh, when the team had losing streaks and always landed that uh, game against San Jose when the team was in a two-game losing streak and made wholesale changes and uh, things uh, worked perfectly. And then you discovered that that AC Jackson could be an asset for the team. And uh, then he has been a regular starter. So... I have a couple of changes. Um, so I have Markanik, Nilsson, Parker, then Akil Watts uh, on the right side. Blom, Leuven, uh, the way Matt was saying, more as a number eight with with more um, freedom uh, to um, to build plays and go on offense. Um, Indy, AC, and uh, one of my changes, uh, and as Matt was saying, I was like, well, yeah, I guess we're onto something here. I'm gonna, st- I will start Celio and then Klaus. I love it. I really, I love the the rant. It's not random. I love the the mix of players that you guys have thrown out there because I like them all for different reasons. I'm with you, Matt. I want to see the four four two flat. I'm I'm hard on wanting it to be flat, and I like everything you said. It's when I start questioning who should be in this next game, I start thinking of the attacking mids. Uh, sorry, the wingers, rather, I'll just say. And then what two strikers? Obviously, basically, who's going to be alongside Klaus in this one? I'm good. I love the wingers you guys listed. I'm leaning towards Stroud and AZ. Um, only because I think we need to quadruple down on the press. We it's It's... It's our main style of play, Matt. I know you just listed a bunch of ways that they can improve the midfield, who they can play through and how playing through the middle. And I think if we start thinking about that, I do agree with you that those are our biggest weaknesses, but I don't think that's where we're going to win in the playoffs. We have a style of play 
and we got to quadruple down on that press. We got to quadruple down on those double teams, and we cannot let SKC win those double teams. They can't let them escape. And so we just have to be rabid pressers in this one. We have to see what we saw from the beginning of the season. We have to see, like, I want to see a little bit of, I remember early in the season, in the preseason, we'd see these academy kids come on and just like run their butts off, mm-hmm. like crazy little rabbits going crazy at everybody. And I loved that. And I think we need to see that again in the playoffs that we got to turn up the heat. SKC called our bluff and we got very embarrassed. And so I want to see two strikers because I do think that will help us double down, quadruple down on the press. Sam or Nico, I don't care. Um, you can use them in different ways. Um, and perhaps Sam is best to start. He had a lot of success against KC in the past. So I'm good with that. Do we use Indy, AZ, Stroud? You know, Stroud and AZ, I think, will press the best. I think Indy's the next in line there for the best pressing winger that we have. Uh, but I don't care. I just want them to go absolutely nuts pressing SKC. And I want to see early subs. I don't want to see late subs. I want to keep that energy up. And I want to just make sure that that works and Casey doesn't have like we take away what they're good at, which is possession, possession, passing out of the press. We can't let them do that, in my opinion. And so one thing I want to add, I, I love the call out to sub early. And I think what I what I want to see Carnell do is take a breath and stay within himself, not play the game of Vermees. Don't try to counterattack what they're doing. Look at what you're doing mm-hmm. right or wrong yourself and what you want to do better and make yourselves based on that. Don't don't go chasing SKC at all. And I also thinking about the fullbacks, Hebert and Watts, you know, I don't care. We don't have to overthink that either. Matt, I think your stats are very, very convincing. And I'm I could be sold very easily on that. But I don't think it's a big difference to put in Markanic and Nerwinski. It's like plan A, plan B. And if we want to go wholesale change, I'm good with that. I'm good okay, if they don't want to. One of the things, too, I, people talk about Akil Watts, myself included, as an attacking-minded right-back, same with Anthony Marcanic. We've seen very successful defensive work from Akil Watts. We think of him like an attacking one, which he does move high, but his defensive numbers are actually higher than Jake Nerwinski's as far as mm. his tackles and interceptions per 90. I'm surprised because he's high, so maybe he's a good presser as well. 4.59 uh, tackles and interceptions per 90 for Akil, 3.17 for Jake Nerwinski. Great stuff, Matt. Thanks for that. Uh, I apologize. I spoke a little bit too long here. Three to two. I agree with Matt. Three to two St. Louis on this one. We got to win. We got to prove it. Are we these things that everyone thinks we are? Are we inexperienced in the playoffs? Has everyone figured us out? There's only one way to tell. That's the game we got coming up on Sunday. And I cannot wait. I hope we prove them all wrong. And if we don't, I think, you know, next season, I'm going to be saying the exact (laughs) same thing because because anything's possible. We've seen this team do crazy things this season. As tired as we are about talking about SKC, I hope that we're still talking about them next week as opposed to looking to the offseason. Yeah, next 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 Thursday, hopefully. And and guys, I didn't give my prediction. I have two to one. Okay, love it. Love it. Good stuff. All right, thank you so much, guys. Thanks you. Thank you to the listeners listening here. Flyover Footy on the big 550 KTRS. Good luck to City on Sunday. Bye-bye.
That's new. That's not what you normally drink. Four Hands Fest beer. There you it's go. The, the season is taking a turn, and so we're emptying the stock. <laughs> I finally went out and bought a whole pack of uh, a whole box of uh, the Urban Chestnut one. Oh, that's oh, cats, right? Oh, cats is something you need to have a a uh, case of before they stop making it for the season. That's it's a new a tradition. Classic it's a new tradition for me. Um, Matt, I I, I kind of made a an executive decision. I want to do what you said, but let's. Is that about... an executive decision when you do what I say? Well, I'm going to I'm going to specify a certain way of doing it. Uh, believe it or not, there are some slight OCD things to me. I, I like a certain timeline to flow in a certain way. And uh, let's do this one. Let's talk more about the lineup. Let's start in the back. Let's start with the defense and we'll work our way up because I think we both have a lot we can elaborate on as far as individual players that we maybe didn't fit into the KTRS version. Yeah, this is this is why I like you hosting as opposed to me, because I my OCD brain, I just want to get as much in as possible. And sometimes <laughs> it's just a brain dump and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, with my I think the biggest ways that our lineups differed um, in a lot of ways, we we all agreed on some form of two strikers or a different look up top. And, and even in Sansi's when he's using Salio, we've seen Salio as a second striker this season. He's played up at the top, trying to stretch the field and get wide in a, in a way that, honestly, Sam Adeneron does too. Obviously, they have different makes and different skill sets, but that's Salio could be a second striker. He doesn't just have to be a left or a right winger. But one thing that we did differ in, um, especially Santi and me, was our left back looking at, at and how our fullbacks can match up together. And I had the stat of Akil Watts very specifically because when we talked about all the different players who have received criticism this week, Jake Nerwinski it might be uh, uh, enemy number one as far as the, who the fan base is looking for a different player to slot in. Hmm. There was a very strong opinion that Daniel Shallowy just absolutely torched Jake Nerwinski in a lot of ways. And the passing network for SKC kind of backs that up in the sense that Shallowy was so far wide and high on the left from everybody else that he clearly was stretching the field in a way that nobody else was and nobody else was on the entire field, City included. And I didn't necessarily think it was extremely fair to give Jake all the blame on that because, for instance, the throw-in goal last week where it was on the side of the field and Jake Nerwinski was marking Shallowy, who was kind of in the middle of the box, and then um, Ndembe ended up scoring the goal behind Jake, right? Well, Jake was just doing what he had to do to guard Shallowy, to mark Shallowy as that last attacker back. I think you look to other players like an Indiana Vasilev who maybe should have been you know, protecting that, uh, that, that far wing side to notice the left back moving up. It's that scenario that I think Jake was caught into where he had yeah. responsibilities and roles, um, but you do have to admit that Shallowy did outrun him quite a few times. Getting in behind, it was just a pacier player. So well, I think that's... Just yeah. to add to that, yeah, if you don't mind, I it, it, Berkey also mentioned the fact in that presser, the fact that a lot of shots weren't blocked. And yes, we didn't clear the ball far enough, right? In a couple of uh, circumstances, in more than a couple circumstances. And some of that is just the midfield following their runners. That's the kind of thing you kind of drop off on if you're tired, um, if you want more evidence toward that. And so, yep. that, I mean, that's what a overlapping fullback is meant to do is create 
um, an outmatch. It makes the fullback make a decision one way or another. And, and City has always been uh, very forward and not hiding the fact that we put our defenders on an island at times. And so Nerwinski is on an island. You can expect problems to develop and for those guys to have to catch the blame on on a lot of that and i you know i've been critical of Norwinsky in the early parts of the season i thought he made a lot of silly mistakes and i think he's cleaned a lot of those up in my opinion but um maybe i'm missing some things no you're not and there's a reason why he's earned a starting spot back after akil picked it up for a good stretch of games and when when asked at a press conference before the vancouver game Nerwinski had said, yeah, he was tapped because of his defensive abilities. And what I think he means in that regard is the thing that we've noticed this entire season is when you have one of your fullbacks, we, we refer to him as attacking minded and one defensive minded, it plays out in that asymmetrical shift where if you have Markanik, Nilsson, Parker and Nerwinski then when you're pushing the ball up the field more times than not, it's Markanik making that run. We've seen him work well with Edu Leuven and with like a Jared Stroud off on the left side or a Sam on the, on the left side pushing high. And so you're getting numbers high because you're pushing your left fullback up there where Nerwinski drops back into a right center back role. And so when we're, when we're pushing the ball up and attacking, you look back at where our defenders are and it looks like we have a three center back look going and Markanik turns into a wing back. When we are resetting defensively, yeah, Markanik will drop back. And the same thing happens vice versa when Hebert is in at left back and Akil Watts is in at right back. We tend to shift more towards the right and Akil will be the one to push up. I was actually surprised when I look back at the stats that I dropped on the KTRS portion where Akil Watts actually has more tackles and interceptions than Jake Nerwinski. That was surprising to me even because my I just remember and the eye test tells me yeah that Akil is higher up and he's not as defensive minded, but that just speaks to his two way ability, his ability to track back. And like he said earlier in the year, when I asked him, how does he know where he needs to position himself being that? Cause that just think about how difficult that is from a mindset perspective on your responsibilities to push high on the right side, to be part of the offense in carrying the ball up. Sometimes it takes you to the end line on the attacking side but your responsibility is also on maybe a left winger or a left midfielder to make sure that they can't get in behind you. How do you know where to be if you're trying to push the ball up to make sure that you're not losing anybody? And his answer was simply looking over his shoulder, hmm. just glancing back. And he's proven to be very adept at doing that. And so I trust that if he's in on the right side, he's capable of tracking back. And I don't have that worry. And we've seen it play out a few times. That's one thing. I, one reason I think that it would provide a, a different shape because he wouldn't be that player that drops back in that three center back when we're on attack, he would be pushing high. And I, I immediately default to the success that we've had with Hebert on that other side. Kyle Hebert's another player who's gotten a lot of discussion throughout the year where he did a great job at the beginning of the year as a center back, starting center back before Nilsson came and then moving to a left back role when you had the depth that Josh Yarrow and Lucas Bartlett provided and you were having issues with Johnny Nelson. He was able to cover that left back role, more defensive minded, and he learned how to play it throughout the year. But truthfully, we've had a really good record with Hebert at left back. Where we have not had a good record is Hebert in at right back. Nashville comes to mind. Uh, there's another game that he came in and he moved over. But he, he hasn't shown that ability in, in limited fashion, admittedly, to play that. But Hebert at left back, we've had success with. And so I, I, I hear and I see those bad performances that he's had in those moments, but 
more often than not, he's out of position even as um, a left back. So he's he's playing the wrong side. I wouldn't put him at right back in any circumstance right now. But I still feel comfortable with Hebert in at left back that keeps a lot of the principles that the team has been successful in this entire season, leveraging a winger who can push high and three defensive minded on the back line. And I said earlier when I did when I said my lineup, I'm not too choosy about who plays what you know, what fullback it starts and which one ends the, the game. I will say that I was a bit frustrated that Hebert came in late in that game when we needed to make up goals uh, because every time he got the ball in the final third or close to it, it was, it was pretty frustrating at that point. I, I, I'm, I'm still surprised he's allowed to push forward when he's in there as a fullback uh, as high as he does. Um, but it, it, it's fine. So I, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about, here's a good question, actually, and I think it, it, it um, relates to this topic perfectly. Daniel Gavura says, do you think our, oh, sorry, if Casey gets up and goes defensive, I think we'll need Celio Nico in the final third to create. That's Chris Gebhardt said that, actually. And um, do they even need to be up a goal before they go defensive? You know, like, are they going to try being defensive and just force us to score in this game. And what does that say about our fullbacks? You know what I mean? That's another thing I go to. We, we can't worry about what they're going to do. Like we've seen multiple versions of SKC and, and the, we, we, we get out of ourselves when we're waiting to see what they're going to do. Um, wouldn't surprise me if their intent is to sit back a little bit more, go back into not, not necessarily a full low block, but at the same time, I could easily see Peter Vermees going into the bag of tricks and surprising STL because if St. Louis goes down a goal early, everything changes. Like mm-hmm. that, I think the, the the risk to worrying about what sporting is going to do is that you you focus on playing off of them, you allow them to dictate the flow, get an early goal, and then you have to do essentially what you did in matches like LAFC, like Seattle earlier in the year, where Bradley Carnell loved to say earlier in the year, he, he never played for ties. If they go down, he's going all out to get a goal back, to get a second goal, to take the lead. That's what City will do. They'll they'll get outside of themselves. They'll try to do too much. And that's where the goals could pile on. So huge risk if we allow an early goal and I think that might be what Peter Vermes does. He looks for those moments and opportunities. What his team showed in this game last week is an ability to score almost out of nowhere. Those three goals in the first half they had last week, they had a combined 0.33 XG. Hmm. Like you, you made the call that it was frustrating to not block shots. Well, that's the only reason that they scored. They didn't have any good angles. All three were outside the box. All three were space that had closed onto them, but they had an open window to shoot the ball, low percentage or not, and they made us pay. They are, they've proven their pinpoint accuracy no matter where they are on the field. Your job as a, as a city defender now is to put your body in the way of them and the goal. And, and I think it's going to come in moments. I wouldn't be surprised if they drop back into a low block like Daniel's saying and tried to counterattack and, um, really, really create moments and not high volume opportunities, but they showed last week that they can be successful in doing that. And so the mm. onus, like I said earlier, is still on our back line on Jabulu Blom to close up those space and block all of, I mean, physically block their looks to the goal. 
Yeah, and I think the chances they got, um, while XG didn't like lay out how good the chances were, and I don't know if they were like well worked or not perfectly. I mean, it doesn't matter. I think there's a storyline here that no one has said yet. And that is, you know, one, perhaps city had like just one of the worst defensive um, performances they've ever had. Um, which I do think is true in this case with the set piece goals was like, what was that? I mean, yeah. just wild. Uh, that wasn't like them. And then the other side to that is, um, you know, KC is from my friends who are KC fans, Finishing has been a problem all season. So, like, did they have an especially good random game of finishing? Is it part of their hot streak that they're figuring out how to finish? Um, there's a chance that they just had a really good game um, against St. Louis and that their finishing was good one night and, you know, St. Louis could get back on their horse and really prove that it was a really weird game and the true winner is St. Louis. There's a chance of that. I just want to throw it out there for once. Definitely is. And and that's one thing that's difficult to quantify and difficult to analyze because oh, yeah. it's it's the intangibles of form. And that's why when you Which talk is about my specialty here, <laughs> but, it, but it's real because coming into the playoffs, I think you're seeing that play out. You're seeing what happens when a St. Louis City side is not in the greatest of form and a sporting KC side who have basically been fighting for their playoff lives for the back half of the entire season have have scored goals when they've needed to they've won when they've needed to and they've fought and clawed their way in they've been facing these do or die scenarios just about every single week since league's cup and most notably their past two two games before st louis it was lose or go home or win or go home mm-hmm. and and that that dates back to the st louis loss four to one where after that they dumped three on rail salt lake they dumped three on minnesota And then San Jose held them to a draw, which they won in PKs, and then they dumped four on St. Louis. So three out of the past four games, they've scored at least three goals. That's a team that is finding ways to pour on these goals and a markedly different team than they were earlier in the year. That's where it it, go back to the strikers, right? Strikers on city have Nico Joachini and Klaus have consistently said that four matters for them. If they're scoring goals, they're going to consistently keep scoring goals. Well, that's what Sporting KC has shown an ability to do. Alan Polito, since coming back from his injury at the beginning of the season, has taken this team to a new level. And they're, it's almost unfortunate that St. Louis has to deal with them right now because of how hot they've been. This is the reason, this is the exact reason that I and, and many others wanted to play San Jose. Do I think that we're outmatched on every turn? Absolutely not. We spent the entire first half of the pod saying what we need to do to win. And I firmly believe that we have the ability to beat SKC like we've done twice in the regular season. But it would have been an easier path, I think, to victory with San Jose. I completely agree. I wouldn't have been nearly as worried. And I think they would have performed better in the, in the first game uh, just by nature of, of the type of team. Uh, completely agree. Um Let's move forward a little bit here. Let's talk about Leuven and Blom. We we all pretty much agreed that that needs to be the uh, the double pivot there. Yeah. And, and just one thing I wanted to say is that you know you you look at how St. Louis sets up with the three in the back when attacking, looking like three center backs. Blom is also like the backup plan if they catch you on the counter against that attacking um, left wing. If it's Mark Kanich, 
get Markanic right wing if it, if it's Watts. And so, you know, Blom is a massive piece in that. Matt, you were talking about wanting to play through the middle a little bit more. What, what are your thoughts on, on their importance here? Well, Blom's importance defensively is almost taken for granted at this point. Like he, we're obviously a different team when he's in the lineup and we're a different team. I'm so sorry. I'm going to mute myself. You keep going. It sounded like a fire alarm. It was. I better check it out. Blome's impact to this team almost goes taken for granted because we're a different team with Blome in the lineup versus not. Um, his the way that he impacts the game, both defensively and those one v ones against a number ten from the other team, like a Gotti Kinda or an Eric Tommy, is is so vitally important. And the way that he can cover spaces for the defense when we drop back into that three center back type look when we're pushing the ball up, that's how we can prevent ourselves from getting caught in the counter is by having Blom drop back and help out. What Blom does as far as progressing the ball up, though, is more act as a traditional pivot. He doesn't progress the ball up himself. He's he's middling in our team in uh, his, his progressive carries, but he's one of the higher players in the team in number of progressive passes. And I think especially earlier in the season, maybe just right after League's Cup, we saw a very successful Jabulu Blom when he progresses the ball up with his passes, he makes some long passes and it's being able to read, read the field on where our players are for those, because there's a, there's a comment in chat that Craig was saying that it seemed like our passes were kind of just off a little bit and we're, we're kind of harder to connect. Our touch has been off as a whole team. And that starts with a Tim Parker, Joachim Nelson and Jabula blown when they're progressing the ball up through, through the outside, through our wings, there is a little bit more space, and so there, I believe there's a little bit more opportunity for error when you're receiving the ball. You have a little more space to work with. But when you're in the midfield, if you're going to progress the ball through the midfield, you're going to have to deal with a clogged space. And so quick, tight touches, those long progressive passes are dangerous in and of themselves. So you're having to deal with needing to be really high-caliber individual players who can progress the ball up and find open spaces and move the ball. And that's where Edu Leuven comes in. The conversation this week has really centered around where is Leuven's best position. That's one of the big topics of conversation. And there's a lot of calls for Leuven as a 10. I don't know if that's coming from EAFC or not, because to be quite honest, the, the new game, Edu Leuven, he kills MLS opposition as a 10. So if you're looking for an, an A lineup for City and EAFC, Leuven at the 10 is it. But here in the real world, I would argue that Leuven, like I said earlier, better at the eight, better at progressing the ball up, either passing or carrying the ball, and then giving service to some of those outside wings, to AZ Jackson, moving the ball from the defensive third where Blome lives to the attacking third. And the amount of service that Leuven gives into the attacking third, into the area around the penalty box is where his his biggest asset to us can be besides set pieces. He can deliver the ball to AZ Jackson or deliver the ball straight through to a Klaus or a Sam, then he's done his job. I would love Leuven to get shots off after shots because he's a he's a he's a bullseye. He's deadly aim accurate, but he's so good with the ball at his feet to delivering service to others and that's where the stat of Edu before AZ having uh, eight points, five goals, three assists. And then since AZ has really taken a starting job with San Jose Earthquake game, one goal, seven assists. So he's been providing a whole lot more service, a whole lot more opportunities to others. 
but we've still remained consistent on um, the number of goals scored, 16 goals versus 14. He is not the problem in, in our ability to score goals when he plays the eight. It's really interesting to me. Sorry, it's really interesting to me that I noticed Leuven in several of the games ahead of this playoff game was really going wide a lot and just looking for that cross in. And maybe that's um, I, I haven't found a correlation with that. I don't know well, if that's he's, part of the diamond being in it. The, the okay. diamond. He, he plays the left mid and the diamond is the, one of the things. No, it was before that even. Oh, uh, even maybe that. they were in the, the diamond and I just didn't realize it actually. But I don't know. I, basically, I think if we see Nico out there, he probably won't be going wide very often. But I do have a feeling that if Sam and um, Klaus are in there, that I think he's going to go wide a lot and look for a cross in. And and if Casey is, is compact and defending well and letting St. Louis own the ball, like... I do think he's going to go. I think that's going to be our best option is to go if, go wide in possession and and lump it in uh, with those two big guys in there. Um, and I just I just hope that we're not going to be talking about this a lot because I think if this is what St. Louis has to rely on, it's going to be a pretty rough game. Personally, I don't know. Well, and I I would love that idea, and I think it can mix well with a lot of what I've been what I've been saying about moving the ball through the midfield, if that's what we need to do, because if you're having Blom as the pivot, find Leuven as the outlet, Leuven has options. If we start pushing high on both wings, part of the beauty of Leuven centrally is his ability to see the field and find the open man on both sides. You're not pigeonholing him to just the left side as successful or not as he is with Marcanic in that overlapping run. I think having Leuven be more of that field general who can see the entirety and deliver the ball to an AZ Jackson or an Indiana Vasilev, Jared Stroud, or even higher up on the field to Sam if he makes a wide left run or over the top to Klaus. Like if you're able to create space for Leuven to work, then wherever he delivers the ball, it can generate some of those crosses. Klaus thrives on crosses. His ability to find space in in seemingly nothing yeah. is is tremendous the amount of crosses that we generated against skc last week was not great most of them were by jared stroud and most of them were blocked edu leuven only generated three crosses salio pompeu generated three crosses in his few minutes of work 11 minutes last week that's one of the the things that he can do as a sub is continue on that work that maybe an az or a stroud or a vasilev does so I, I personally would love to see Saleo be one of our first subs off the off the bench because I know how he can impact the game for a prolonged period of time. But doing a lot of those same things is generating the crosses. We we are successful if we can deliver the ball in, and we are our strikers are good at finding space more often than not. And worst case scenario, if we don't or if we're not successful with those crosses, then the odds of them clearing the ball out significantly is relatively low to the point where we're now generating some of those 50 fifties in the attacking half, get, mm -hmm. keeping the ball in play with numbers high. The The problem is when we're, when they're able to get the ball out and we lose some of those aerial duels, then we're in trouble. Then we're on the counter attack and they're on the fast break, but we have to be a little more clinical in winning some of those 50 fifties high generating crosses. The combination of successful attempts after the crosses and keeping the ball in play in that attacking third that's going to lead to a lot of goals. Let's talk about our wingers. Um, 
I kind of said, you know, I, I'd like to see Stroud in there because I think of his pressing ability. I think he's our best. Yeah. I don't know between AZ and Indy, like is, is AZ tired? Is he going to have a, a tough game after this last one? It is getting late in the season. He is young. Maybe Indy's yeah. going to be more informed, but he's had that injury recently. Um, AZ only played 58 minutes last week. Indy played 79 Stroud played the full 90. So of any player, hmm. I would look to Stroud. This is one of the few times he's actually played the full 90. Most of the time, he's one of the first or second subs out. Yeah. He goes because he goes so hard. Like Jared Stroud is a polarizing figure in the St. Louis City fan base because he he he's, he's got such a hard work rate. He's that blue collar player that you think you would love as a St. Louisan, but at the same time, he's not the most crisp with his passing. He doesn't generate the highest percentage shots. He's not the flashiest of players, but he gets the job done where it needs to be done in the pressing. Like you said, he connects the ball up an awful lot. I think I said he led the team with crosses in six last week. So whatever he does, wherever he is on the field, he's at least putting the ball or attempting to put the ball where it needs to be. I One of those crosses was incredible. And with his left yeah. foot, it was almost a goal. Yeah. yeah he, I, Jared Str- I've I've been called a Jared Stroud apologist a few times this season hmm. be- because I'm a fan of his style of play and I think it's led to a lot of the successes that we've had and there is a reason believe it or not that Carnell keeps going back to him in the oh, starting yeah. 11 he's he's consistent Agreed. and and he works in this system this is the system that he was built for and that he thrives in um, knowing that he went full 90 last week though is the only thing that gives me pause otherwise I would be entirely fine with Indy or Stroud or AZ, two of the three in those uh, wide mid rolls. And I think that that provides a pretty a pretty fun buffer for for subbing. We know that Carnell loves to sub his attackers. And so obviously I think that both of our wide mids are going to be candidates for subbing in the second half. Salio Pompeyu, Tomas Ostrak, Edu, uh, Indy Vasilev, Jared Stroud, those four can kind of man that area if they need to. And then you have Nico, Sam, and Klaus. I'm comfortable with any single one of them in the roles that they need to be. But the one thing I don't want to see, and I've seen calls for this too throughout the week, is I don't want to see Nico wide. Mm-hmm. Nico Giochini does not play well uh, as a wide midfielder. Well, well we haven't team. asked him to do it this year, hardly at all. No. So why start now? That'd be silly. That's, that's the other thing is you don't want to get too you don't want to get too fancy. You don't want to go beyond things that you're not used to and you haven't had success with. It would be very, very cute. And we all know it would how be I feel very about cute. That. Yes. And Nico played with Orlando City as a wide midfielder, and he didn't like it. it he he's very he's been very honest this year about how they didn't use him correctly in his strengths. And I think that would be a huge miss to play him out wide. Underneath is probably where he plays best, underneath Klaus. That's where he had a lot of success. Not necessarily as a 10, but um, playing off of Klaus holding the line. So that could be a different look to what Sam provides in the first half, and whether you want to say first or second. But um, yeah, I I look to Salio Pompeo, honestly, as a potential X factor in the second half if he's brought in early enough. What do you think about uh, him, the shot for, from Santi about him starting? I, I wouldn't mind it. I would, I would champion that lineup. You know, I love, to, I love to find reasons to cheer our starting 11, no matter mm. what it ends up being. That's just what I do. It's a good way to put it. I like it. <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean that negative. I'm sorry. That came out wrong. No, I like it. <laughs> I agree with you. Yes. It is. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm sorry. But I do think that um, 
No, it was nicer than what a lot of people say to me sometimes. <laughs> but I do, I would like it because of what we saw in that 11 minutes. The fact that he had the second most crosses in the game after just 11 minutes in the game. He was beating players 1v1. I don't look for him to go the full 90. Why would mm-hmm. you? No. But in the same sense that you like what Stroud offers, you like what Saleo offers with his quickness and his ability to control the ball. I think there was a stat, and I don't have it in front of me, but he leads the league in one of those categories about uh, carries, I think distance carried with the ball or some something like that per game. But he's very, very um, strong with the ball at his feet. And so as a winger, he can provide a little bit of uh, progressive carries that we don't normally see out of our wingers. We don't normally see the ball being moved from, let's say, midfield or uh, the the third of the, of the attacking half down to the end line on the far wings. We don't see that often. And in fact, St. Louis doesn't control a lot of possession down those areas, but that's something Salio can provide, especially down the left side where most of the, most of the season St. Louis hasn't done well in uh, maintaining the ball, maintaining the ball in those wing areas. Salio could do it. And whether you talk about starting the game, whether you talk about a second half sub, I'd be a fan either way of what he could bring and the different look that it would provide, especially what we ran last week. For some reason, Celio's, um, the things that you said are good about Celio, for some reason, they don't translate terribly well when he's started in the past. But uh, uh, everything else you said, I agree with you. I do hope he, I think he will definitely come in as a sub. And I also, I want to see both wingers subbed out early. You know, I, I said, I don't want to wait too long for the subs in this one. I want both wingers out early. It's what's happened most of the season. And I think it benefits the way we play, how much we ask those guys to run. They just need, it needs to be intense the entire game. Even if someone subs out at the half. Isn't it funny how we haven't even mentioned PKs as a, as a factor in how, how much the dynamics change in how we're approaching this game last week. We talked about, I mean, it's a loss, right? I mean, unless, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're totally right. I just find it funny that, um, we're talking about subbing early, subbing often and, and, and the thought of PKs really, it should not enter the equation. That's my point is that at this point in time, your back's against the wall. You need to win in regulation. You don't leave this to chance. You don't You don't put Carnell's comment that he made Thursday of Tim Melia has to lose a shootout at some point. When he was on morning footy, he said that. And you don't want to put that to the test at all. You don't oh, I don't like that he said that. <laughs> well, you don't want to leave it to that kind of chance. Like no. I would not want to face I don't want to face Tim Melia in general, let alone at Children's Mercy. And so the idea being you do what you need to playing within yourself, subbing when you need to based off your own tactics. You shouldn't shouldn't be chasing the opposition. If we're watching the game on Sunday and it gets to the second half, 60, 65 minutes, and we're saying, oh, St. Louis needs to sub to better handle SKC dot, dot, dot. That's that's uh, already a recipe for disaster. We need to be talking about the game. The game's a stalemate or. St. Louis has been, we're up two goals and it looks like we're lagging in this area. So we need to change things up. We need to bring on a Salio or an Ostrak or a Vasilev. And we need to reinforce this spot, like staying within what St. Louis is doing, talking about us versus them is going to lead to a lot more success. The, Oh my goodness. I hit the wrong button. (laughs) Um, it's not a big deal. The, um, Last thing, 
I think we should talk about. I don't think it's much of a conversation. Um, obviously, Klaus is going to start. Like, what do we think about the difference in the game between Nico and Sam? <sighs> I I I want to see more Sam. Personally, I think what we saw last week uh, would probably leads directly into it because our ability to move the ball on the left side of the field high and wide was abysmal. Hmm. Jared Stroud, Jared Stroud did a good job in what he did, but he tucked in way too often. And he was oftentimes um, not that outlet presence that we need on the left. And that's partially a byproduct of the 4-2-3-1 versus a 4-4-2. Mm-hmm. But... I, I like what Sam offers in one v one situations, and if we're what I was what I was saying earlier is, um, I know SKC oftentimes drops into a low block or they have defensive numbers in their defensive third, but what we need to do is generate one v one scenarios. We need to get our attackers in space opened up where they're facing just one other player and they're having a go at goal. That's where Sam thrives to me. And he's proven he's he's been a proven goal scorer multiple times that way. He is really good for a man his size, for the ball at his feet. He is so he's such a good dribbler. And his ability to control the ball on the end line in space and just create something out of nothing with those flick shots, the power from his left foot, like quick power, release. Quick his release. Quick release with uh not being able to tell where it's gonna go at any given moment. That's really helped him this year. At the same time, I do love Nico Joachini's playmaking. And and he does so well in playing off of a guy like Klaus. Some of these underlapping runs that he might have with the midfielders in laying the ball off. His heel flicks are, uh, they're not legendary, but they are very, very good when they're working. And his ability to draw in defenders and create space behind him for some of our midfielders to work, that's that's something that I think would serve us well, um, especially in a in a transition moment. So it, I guess it depends on how we leverage our midfield. Um, AZ with Nico and with Klaus does provide some exciting opportunities, but I don't know. I just I just think I want more stretching of the field more consistently. And I think Sam offers that a little bit better. Um, Chris Gebhardt said exactly that. He said um, in the SKC San Jose game, when Cade Cal came on, it was like that speed and physicality yep. that really gave them a lot of problems. And that's what Sam provides. Now, Nico does provide, you know, let's say a similar speed, um, but it's different than the Cade Cowell type of speed. I think my favorite thing about Nico is that he's just such a maverick. And in a playoff kind of a game, I think you bring him in because you just don't know he could create something out of absolutely nothing. And you never know when when that's going to come. Um, and I, I think that's just like a perfect super sub kind of a, kind of a play there. Um, I will say, however, that I think Nico is our best pressing striker. So... Again, yeah. if you want to just really focus on aggression, on getting a turnover high in the third, or just like like I said, keeping SKC from escaping those double teams, I think Nico's going to be the one that's most likely going to make that happen over Sam. Although Sam is the one that kind of gets those free passes for some reason in the final third, so I could that's be wrong about that. No, that's a good shout because I do agree that if you're looking at it from a pressing perspective, Nico makes 
a lot of sense. He is a very good striking uh, presser at the striker position, and he puts pressure all the way to the keeper consistently. Like Nico Joachini knows how to read when to press. I think that's one of his um, one of his best strengths that goes unnoticed is his ability to read when to push those push points that Carnell says is we're we're not an all out pressing team. We don't press at every single possible opportunity, but we're we're when we were at our best, we're smart about knowing when to push. And I think that's what Nico offers. He's he's good at creating pressure when it will best benefit the team and putting the ball handler in some very uncomfortable positions, even if he doesn't generate a turnover at the point of press, what he does is he forces some very bad passes or suboptimal passes to borrow a men and blazers quote for mm-hmm. what, what the, the defenders will be doing, whether it's the keeper or the back line, when Nico presses, the ball is often sent long and it's often left up to a 50, 50. So if we start Nico, that's a whole lot of what he can provide and what we should look for is a much more um, short up pressing. And and that will lead to a lot of those 50-50 opportunities in midfield. Yeah, and I think part of what makes him good at that is I, I, I don't know if it's like soccer EQ per, IQ per se, but he has this like veteran savviness and uh, it seems to know seems to be able to picture the entire field and kind of what to do at any given moment uh, during the game as it plays out in real time. So uh, just good stuff about Nico. I do feel bad for the guy because man, like what the season wouldn't have happened without him. And he just hasn't gotten a lot of minutes in the, in the last part of the season. Uh, I don't know. I just feel bad for him. I, I feel like he deserved better, but you know, the competition has been pretty fierce up there. So it has, and the the fact that with Klaus back, whenever we do go to a four two three one, he's not going to be the option up there. Right. It's it's going to be Klaus, and yeah. so him not seeing a lot of opportunities to start lately has been unfortunate, uh, especially in some of these these bigger scenarios. Like he started three of the past five games, but we're talking Vancouver and Seattle being two of those, and I look I look at those two more as of any match this year throwaway games and klaus even alluded to that where he he gave some quotes today referencing their form leading up to skc and how vancouver and seattle they had already wrapped things up read between the lines what you will but it really seemed like there was a a pulling the foot off of the gas at the end of this regular season because of that Um, and that may be part of why you know not to go on a tangent but part of why They've had trouble picking it up in these first match, hopefully not the second against SKC. Nico does seem to have fallen a little bit back in the depth chart. Now, hopefully we do go back to a two striker formation and this will be our first glimpse again of where the, you know, the hierarchy lies. If you go two strikers, the, the second striker is going to be that preferred option. I think it could be a coin flip at this point. And, and, and to elaborate on that a little more, too, is if Nico and Klaus are in together, I think we've seen Klaus being encouraged to drop in a lot because of, of what you said. Like, for some reason, he's able to see the passes. He's able to make things happen that you don't think someone of his size can can pull off. And yeah. I think he and Nico might get in each other's way if he does that a little bit too much. Maybe not, though. I don't know. If you work together enough, I think that'd be fine. And I think Nico midseason showed that he's fine being the lone man up top if, if Klaus is to drop in. So I could be wrong about that. Um, and it could be fun to see them interchange regularly throughout the game. But 
there is that possibility be only because you notice late in the sub or early in the subbing before Sam Adinaran came off, we saw Klaus and Sam up top with mm-hmm. Nico clearly playing a 10 type role. Yes. He was definitely told that rather than being a, a removed striker. So anyway, all those thoughts, which, which works for him playing underneath. But the, the note about Klaus playing more underneath and more closer to our midfielders, not necessarily a false nine, but you know, a little, little deeper than we are used to Klaus. What do you think about that? Do you think that's something that benefits him? Do you think that's just a, a byproduct of necessity in the sense that we're not progressing the ball up to our strikers? So he has to come back a little bit more to receive the ball. And then he has to create more himself in his dribbling. Cause I thought that happened more than a few times where Klaus's opportunities came more towards the outside of the 18 yard box. And it was because he yeah. had to come back towards the ball that to me is a failure of our progressing the ball through our what, midfield or wings. It's just a, a failure of our progressing the ball up to the point where he should be receiving it. So he's now having to come back and create more himself. That very much bothered me. Like how many cutback passes did we see trying to go to Klaus where you just said in this game? And I thought that was very strange that it kept happening, especially because it got cut out so many times. Usually that Mm -hmm. cutback pass is my favorite and it's always available. And in this case, it just wasn't. And yeah, like I, I love when he, when Klaus drops in, I think it's something they've been planning on, but I think he needs to drop in. And then just like our favorite Nerwinski to Klaus goal, the runs from deep, fine run from deep. If you're not going to run from deep and get a goal on the run, then you sit where that freaking, Lone nine striker is supposed to sit. You sit right on that penalty marker or closer right inside that. You know, you know what I'm saying? That's That's, what he's meant to do. That's what he's good at. He's a finisher. That's where the ball lands. That's where everyone aims for. Get there, my friend, and score some goals for us. I don't know what that was about in this game, but it really bothered me a lot. That's the exact picture I was trying to paint of klaus sam nico they know where they need to be to receive the ball from crosses like when we had our conversation about crosses and getting the ball getting service into the box that's what i'm thinking that's my my vision of success successful crosses is is not necessarily it doesn't have to just be the number nine vulture that just waits in there like an olivier Giroux who doesn't do anything they just wait for service and they can finish clinically it can be that exact scenario like we saw in Minnesota where Klaus knows that there's going to be the ball sent. He knows exactly where the space is. He trusts the fullback or the winger to deliver the ball exactly where it needs to be, and he makes the run, starting from way outside the 18-yard box, starting from wherever, but he, he knows where he needs to finish. He knows where he needs to find space. And if you if you keep your players wide in the attack and you're not you're not committing every single part, you're not committing two, three, four players in the box when you're trying to push the ball up, then they're the SKC is going to have to come out to meet you. And if they don't come out to meet you, then you put the ball on net from outside the box. Yeah. You do what they did in the first half of last game and you force them to respect those kinds of shots because they're going to start coming out. This is part of my whole conversation about why volume is key because you change the behavior of the defense if they're trying to make you do one thing and you start taking what they're giving you. Like we we haven't been good at taking the possession and doing something with it, but when we get to the attacking third, if they're dropping so low that they're just clogging up the the penalty box, then you send crosses in, you take shots from long and you force them to come out and meet you. Because if you, I swear, if you meet Tim Melia with one or two of those shots, if you get through the traffic, they're going to come out. They're going to meet you from the point of contact. And that's how you can start to create a little more space and be more creative with everything that follows. 
Yeah. And if Sam's in there, this isn't a problem anymore. Right. But, um, you know, if, if, if Klaus is in there with AZ and Klaus isn't in that spot where he can score, who else? I mean, yeah. it, um, we're not going to expect AZ to do something from that spot unless he gets really lucky and is just wide open. So anyway, um, yeah. we made it. We made it from the back to the front, Matt. I think we're <laughs> a bit out of time here, but I think we were able to kind of make all the points we wanted along the way. You know, it's funny. We, uh, we, we don't usually do this in the wind down. We don't usually get to go like mm-hmm. full on city analytics like we, we do sometimes in the KTRS portion. But I armchair think um, analytics. armchair armchair analysts, full on <laughs> armchair analysts, um, Monday morning quarterbacking on this yes. one. I enjoyed it because I think it's, it's necessary when you when you're when you've lost three for the first time all season. You look to how to write the ship, but you don't want to get too much outside of yourself. You don't want to get too cute, like you yeah. said. And that's how you stick to your principles. Agree. Do what we're good at, but, you know, more so (laughs) this time. (laughs) Please. All right. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, appreciate Chris Gebhardt joining us in in the chat as well as as Daniel. Yeah, man, Chris, it's been so much fun having you there. And Daniel Gavura, thank you so much, man. Yes. And if if you've liked what you've listened to, uh, tell your friends to subscribe, uh, leave reviews and comments on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. That really helps us out. And go city. Go city. Let's get a win. Let's make it three games. Bye, everybody.